once you get yourself back and you feel like you, you're, you are who you are, what is your relationship to the world? And then, of course, the world around us is, seems to be the subtitle of the book is living in a fractured state. Mm. This whole country is fractured. Yeah. And communities are fractured. And families are fractured more so than ever, I think. And so how do you connect when you're essentially not in a place where people are not connecting at all? Hi, welcome to the Big Self Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Prevost. And I'm your host, Shelley Prevost. In 2011, Sebastian Matthews' family was in a major car accident. They were hit head on by a man in the throes of a heart attack. It took three years to recover from their injuries and at least a couple more to deal with the after effects of trauma. When he finally returned to the world, as father and husband, friend and brother, writer and citizen, it became clear to him that our society was in its own traumatized state. Reeling from the string of police shootings of unarmed African Americans, stunned by yet one more mass shooting, the people around him were displaying all the signs of PTSD, jumpiness, irritability, numbness, and... Concordantly, his interactions out in daily life were becoming more dysfunctional, at times downright hostile. Us against them, red versus blue, black versus white, rich versus poor. That they were living in a progressive town inside a conservative county in the mountain south only made things more volatile. He decided that if they were all living in a fractured society, no longer recognizable, then it was up to him to re-engage in it. He would enter into encounters with people as conscious as possible of the potential divides and misunderstandings. He started with his neighborhood and town and then moved out into the counties around us and then traveled further out into the country. His goal, to connect. And we were glad to connect with him to celebrate his new book, Beyond Repair, Living in a Fractured State, and run him through the gauntlet of big self questions. We hop right in asking him about his relationship with burnout. Hey, hey, Chad. Hey, Shelly. Thanks for having we're me. We're so glad you're here. So we are thrilled to have you uh, on today and to have this conversation with you and catch up. I'm going to ask about this because um, I think I'll, we talk about this a lot, and this has been true for my life, uh, maybe for you, Chad, I don't know. But I see burnout as kind of this continuum, or it's this almost like a stage theory that starts really subtly. Um, and I think it's something that most of us are trained to uh, ignore. And I think in that ignoring, it builds up. Uh, it compresses, it becomes something much larger and takes a life force of its own on. And I, yeah. I believe, I think a lot of our current day mental health issues and diagnoses are a result of this unresolved kind of unprocessed stress, which is essentially mm. what burnout is. Has that been true for you, Sebastian? Like, have you seen yourself kind of go through that, that stage or have you gotten to a place to recognize red alert like i'm i need to i need balance i need to go and walk i need to yeah. Yeah. decompress here that's a great question and i think the quick answer is yeah i think i have to, to you know of course until i get knocked off balance right um but i look for that balance and i'm pretty good at, at re-establishing re it but what you're talking about makes sense to me and the way i used to talk about it uh and wrote a couple books about um through the lens of the idea of ptsd triggers and maybe there's a connection there because 
what I found when I, when I was coming after coming out of the accident and I spent a two or three year recovery to get my you know get back on my feet and mm. get myself back into the world that I had a very hard time uh, distinguishing between my interior responses to the world around me and the world around me they seemed I seemed mm. to be a target of hostility. I seemed to get into situations where I would be out of sorts or things would happen and I couldn't tell what what was the source. And maybe that might be a similar place you get to when you're really stressed and and burned out is that you, you're in this loop as you describe it and it's hard to, to hard to see yourself outside of it or or to, to or even to, to see the world around you mm. any way other than in this kind of um, triggered place. And, and I'm not saying you're old. Yeah. However, no. I will say, I think it does take a little bit of, I don't know if it's maturity or life experience to allow yourself to be taught and kind of broken open a little bit like that. Because the world that, that we've come from, business and certainly startups, uh, tech startups, like it's a power through mentality. It's not a stop yes. and pause and reflect mentality. So getting to that, I think it does take a little bit of, I don't know. Wisdom. Would we say wisdom? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, look, oh, yeah. life experience. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Dante wrote the Inferno at 35 and he was claiming to be at midlife. It's, it's, so he we're was all mature old. right there. So, you know, uh, no, we hate that guy. We hate that guy. <laughs> right. Yeah. He went through his own struggles, I think, but you know, and speaking of yours, like you actually, you, these are your words that you write in your book beyond repair. With, uh, despair and depression are a normal part of recovery. It's easy mm -hmm. to look and see it all with the benefit of 2020 hindsight. Perhaps the most important thread in this shared ordeal is the experience of trauma, how confusing and unsettling it feels when you're in the midst of it. Our job now is to stay awake in our lives and to be patient as this crisis unfolds. Mm -hmm. Do what we can for ourselves, for those around us. Whatever comes our way, the way out is through. I love that. Mm -hmm. You're talking about mental health here. We're talking about, even if we're maybe not burnout here, we're talking about mental health. And your book, to me, really illustrates one of a lot. It documents some patient healing. Uh, and it's your mind. So you give us glimpses into the severity of your struggle, which I know you're kind of talking, you're talking down a little bit, but it was... I think it was intense. And so your goal was to connect or reconnect with the world. Yeah. So uh, getting to a question, what, was there a okay. turning point here, a moment when you decided, you, you know, the only way out was through and you started to make progress towards your goal or, you know, was it a process? Was there a turning point? Moment? And I'd, I'd love for you to share, if you would, Sebastian, a little bit about that experience or as much as you yeah. want to. No, happy to. And actually that, uh, the, the, the turning point is very clear. It's it's actually um, patently clear. I was my family was hit by a car head on uh, going down a road. We were both going. We were going about fifty five miles an hour, and the guy who was hit us was going about fifty five or sixty. He had died of a heart attack. Turns out, mm. and he mm. crossed over the lane, and we got in a head on collision and almost died. Uh, and it was um, you know that was a, a life changing event. But coming out of it maybe was the turning point because when we came back to ourselves to the point of we could kind of fake it and feel like we're in we're in our life and people could kind of say okay you're better now you know we'll leave you alone um of course after a year we were barely you know barely able to do that in some ways it gets worse in terms of ptsd a couple of years out 
so we didn't know what was going to hit us then. Um, it became clear to me that my life had been um, headed in a certain direction that I wasn't happy with, and our marriage was struggling, and we had a chance to, to reset everything, and or not, or, or maybe to break apart. Um, and our child was eight years old, and his life was... He had not been hurt by the accident. He was in the back seat, but he was definitely affected by it psychologically. So we kind of decided, okay, this is a chance to do something different here. And um, I began to teach less, and I began to go to trauma therapy. I began to be a stay-at-home dad. And maybe that's where the patience comes that you're talking about. It was, uh, it was forced upon me, you know, I, and, and that, that, talking about that idea of being, you know, depression and, um, what's the quote? Depression and despair. Despair. I would add shame, you know, that it's mm. hard to get out of that state and it's easy to, 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 or it's hard to get out of it. It's not even easy to do anything, just hard to get out of it. And so um, I began to write very, um, very consciously about the accident. And I tried to kind of, in a sense, step myself out of that place by writing about it. Like, so the idea of the way out is through, that came from my aunt, who was a, um, a modern dancer and who was, you know, struggled with physical stuff all her life and, and overcome it through dance. And her art, she said, basically, you got to get through pain. You can't avoid it. You have to move through it. And it was, at first, I was like, oh, thanks a lot. Uh, <laughs> but then I realized, no, she's exactly, that's right. That's it. That's the trick. Um, so that might have been really the turning point of that understanding that uh, there was no, no other way to, to do this but to move through it and to then be as conscious as a writer and as a citizen. And that's mm -hmm. maybe where the next book comes from. Once you get yourself back and you feel like you, you're, you are who you are, what is your relationship to the world? And then, of course, the world around us is, seems to be the subtitle of the book is living in a fractured state. Mm. This whole country is fractured yeah. and communities are fractured and families are fractured more so than ever, I think. And so how do you connect when you're essentially not in a place where people are not connecting at all? Um, and then the pandemic comes and politicizes things that maybe shouldn't have been politicized, you know? Yeah, so, sure. How, yeah. like, go, too far out. take us back a little bit. I'm curious, uh, as a psychologist, yeah. of course, I'm curious about the, yeah. the, like, the, the process. So you come out of this really traumatic experience, you recover physically, or, or maybe it's simultaneously, you're recovering emotionally and physically, and I would imagine spiritually on some level, too. Um, did you... It, was it was it there's like an impetus that made you kind of move forward or is it more of a gradual just kind of I'm just going to survive and like keep moving one step in front of the other? Because I'm 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 wondering, like people listening right now who I think are I think there is a lot of us who are struggling uh, deeply, deeply and can't imagine the way out is through or like, how do I even do that i i am so broken right now things are i feel yep. so lost like talk a little bit about the that thrust to, that got you to to start writing about it to face the fears and the the trauma that's a really great question a very difficult question to answer and i don't want to be an advertisement for for therapy oh, please preach I, you're preaching but i will because i couldn't have you know a lot of talk to say a way out is through i couldn't have done it on my own um, I couldn't have done it without my wife. Um, but at certain point, I remember maybe this was really the, the biggest impetus is that when we got hurt, when we came out of the accident, I got off the pain meds within two months. Um, and I forced myself off them and I struggled through a kind of immense pain for about eight months. Wow. And then, but I did it because 
my wife, who has J, uh, JRA, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, I knew she wasn't going to come back fast at all. And I knew that our eight-year-old boy needed us back as soon as possible. And so I pushed myself really hard. And I, um, I even went to Chattanooga uh, almost a year out. I went to England a year and a half out to help my grandmother die. I was doing things like I don't think I should have been doing. Um, but I, I went back to work within four, four or five months. Um, and at a certain point, my wife turned to me, and she was about a year and a half, two years out. And she said, I think I'm, re- I think I'm ready to come back now. And you, you're a wreck. You need to hmm. stop. Wow. And you need to heal yourself right now. And so I went into, I quit, I quit my job, and I went to trauma therapy. And what was great about it was I needed the trauma therapy. I needed to understand what PTSD was, what it meant to be a head-on collision is and to break, you know, 34 bones in your body and bruise your heart. And, and, you know, the things that I went through were so intense that it's like I needed somebody to help me respond to that and creative, not creatively, healthily, in a way that was healthy and, 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 and process it. And then at a certain point, that therapy came, like I was joking, and I said to my therapist, you know, that feels like regular therapy now. It's like, yep, you're back to your same old problems. <laughs> and, and, and they hadn't really changed, you know, oh. but, but, but what a relief, mm-hmm. what a gift to be able to have the same old problems. Oh my goodness. Um, 34 bones. I did not know that. That's... Yeah. Well, I, cra- I cracked all my ribs and, um, you know, my femur, my hip, my knee, my one ankle, my other ankle in seven places, my spine. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was bad. Yeah, and I, I hear what you're saying, too, in terms of, two, I hear two things. Like, it was um, going in and doing the work with a therapist that you trusted to help you navigate that, but also this external kind of support systems that you had to help you keep moving forward. So I think that internal, external way because i know people may not have been gone haven't gone through a car accident like this a significant like that but certainly have their even oh, little t traumas that they're oh no every, everybody has exactly everybody yeah that everybody we need has. to go inside and do that healing uh with a therapist or a coach or somebody but then also like really do an audit of the supports around you and how do you build those structures uh beyond just the healing process. We need those all the time. So yeah, I really yeah. appreciate that. No, I totally agree. And I just want to say two things. One is definitely people sometimes say, well, we never, I've never, you know, done this, you know, never been through something as bad as that. And I usually try to stop them and say, mm-hmm. it's really not a matter of everybody goes through tons of trauma all the time. Yeah. And I think what you're talking about is the most important part of learning a way, finding ways to, to, to cope with it. But I think that brings me back to privilege. You know, I was able to, to quit my job and, and not make money for two years. I had some money saved up. I, it, it was, I was in a very privileged place. Um, and not people who are not always able or f- feel like they're able to stop. They can't stop working. They have three jobs, mm-hmm. a single mom, you know, how do they, how do they make time, you know, yeah. and have the money to get that work done, you know? So I, I wanted to say, I know that that was, um, that was a privilege and to a large part unearned. Yeah, I appreciate I you. I appreciate you saying that because I think that is yeah. uh, truth. You know, and we do talk yeah. a lot about even the ability to have the conversation around burnout. I mean, oh, oh my gosh, what a luxury to talk about. And like, where some people, yeah. I think they're going into these workplaces and living three jobs, raising kids, like they don't have yeah. the, the quote luxury of examining 
these conditions yep. that they're in. So I totally agree with you. I think it's important yep. to say. I think too, um, it may lead us back to what you were just saying earlier, responsibility as a citizenry, like our responsibility yep. to each other. Um, and as we kind of, I always think about stepping into wholeness. There's a lot of healing. So moving into wholeness, like what that looks like, what is my responsibility now yep. to other people based on the healing work that I'm able to do or the, the, you know, the privilege that I've been able to um, move through the, whatever traumatic process I'm in. So, so could you say more about that? Like what, what have you written and what do you, how do you think about that? Our responsibility. Well, that's really what the next book's about. Um, there was a lot of nasal gazing that was inherent in the work of the book Beginner's Guide to a Head-On Collision. And there's a lot of same thing in just recovery. You have to take, you have to take care of yourself. You have to think about yourself. You can't not. It's one of the worst parts of it in some ways. You get sick of yourself. But when I was done with that book, I had a few pieces in it that were about my encounters with other people, and I and I was very interested in and pursuing that. This next book's about Beyond Repair. I had finished my first book, and it really was a very self. Uh, reflective and self-involved book by by nature. Recovery is, is just like mm -hmm. that, and that's how it works. And I would come out of it, and I had written a few pieces about encounters I had with other people, and that was like, maybe that's where the next way I need to go, is to think about how do I re-enter this, this, this new, um, for me, a new world. And then, of course, this was right around when Obama was finishing up and Trump was about to get elected and everything was changing. And it was clear that the, the climate was hostile and, and, and fractured and people were really mad at each other and they were misunderstanding each other almost on purpose, it seemed. Um, of course, it's even got worse. And so I had two encounters, one with a woman who I realized pretty quickly, it's one of the early pieces in the book, uh, had Alzheimer's. I was getting into an elevator. I'm very self-involved. I was in pain, and I was trying to figure out where I was. But I was getting out of the elevator, and she stepped in, and she looked at me and said something like, do you know where I am? Mm. And I was just like, oh. Wow. And I got back into the elevator, or I held the elevator, and said, um, where are you going? You know. And it became pretty quickly, and she even said, I have Alzheimer's. And so I, mm. I was able to help her find her, her where she was going. Yeah. And, I was, and I went back and told Allie about it, my wife, and she was able to kind of point it out, like, look, you know, that's – incredible that you're actually now in a place where you're actually able to actually pay attention to other people. Mm -hmm. um, and I was like, wow, I need, I want it. That's the way I like to be. I like to be aware and I like to be engaged. Um, and then I had another encounter where a series of encounters over a day where I was being kind of harassed by these, I call it white guys in trucks. These guys were driving by <laughs> and flipping me off and, and just kind of driving really close and, and uh, driving when I was in the car, driving really close behind me, which of course is a trigger for me. And so I was like, I'm so sick of this. And at the end of the day, I was walking my dog, and this guy pulled up, and I just bit, almost bit his head off. I was just like, what, the, what do you want? You know, like, like I was as, as if I was talking to all these guys. And he would lean down and said, you know, he basically loved my dog and wanted a dog to lick him. And it was just like he would lost his dog recently. Mm. And so it was like this incredible moment where he connected with me, despite the fact that I was ready to fight. Um, and so when I had those, in two counter, those two encounters and wrote about them, I thought, okay, now I need to do this as a project and I spent two years going out and pushing myself out past my limits and meeting people in bars, airports, gas stations, you know, and then also I was a soccer dad. Um, so on the soccer field, um, at my kid's school, you know, everywhere I went, I tried to encounter people and then I tried to write about it as a way to, to explore 
connection versus disconnection, really. Well, which is sort of contrarian to what a writer may naturally do, right? We I, we tend to isolate ourselves. We need the focus. So uh, that must must have been pushing yourself. You know, you've had a lot of these one-off experiences, and you were pushing yourself to like on a broader kind of picture connect. Um, do you? Do you find, are you, do, what do you do now to, are you doing anything now to connect? Are you, uh, where, where are you at when it comes to like community and how you yeah. engage uh, with your maybe local environment? That's a great question. And really, these, everything's been going on very, in a very clear succession. When I finished this book of Beyond Repair, I kind of thought, okay, yeah, you can encounter people and, and, and try to connect and, and observe microaggressions and try to be this or that. But what are you really doing, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in your community? because I had fallen out of a lot of what I did because of the accident. And I initially started doing some work for a place called the Vermont Studio Center, and I, and I got really involved, and it's an artist retreat center, and I really liked it. But I, but I began to think, well, what am I doing in my own community? Mm-hmm. And issues of race and class and racial um, privilege, uh, white privilege, are obviously you know hot topics, but they had been what was behind Beyond Repair. All my reading was about that. Um, Claudia Rankin, citizen, and I... So I thought, well, maybe I need to get involved with some community groups. And so I've been doing that for the last couple of years, a, a, a group called Building Bridges that looks at Asheville through the lens of how essentially white uh, um, upper-class uh, Asheville has gentrified and pushed out middle-class black American communities and what's the history of that and how does it play out and what, you can, what can you do about it. Uh, there's mm-hmm. some racial coalition stuff that I'm trying to get involved with. So really pushing myself to the next layer of uncomfortability. I'm not a, a natural activist. Yeah. Um, I don't like going to, like certainly after the accident, I didn't like going to those, um, you know, protests, but I went to some, but I, it was not, not for me, um, for uh, some really personal levels, but I wanted to be there. But I can go from the, get in the, from the back, from this third line and help people, you know, on boards and, and help, you know, help these groups do what the, the work they're doing. Give some money, give some time, and participate. So it's another way of, you know, I talk about literary citizenship. Mm. You know, that's one of the best answers to your question of burnout, honestly, is to give. Mm. Yeah, It's it's almost counterintuitive. Get out of yourself and give to somebody else, you know, whatever that is. I was just, that was my question. I was just going to ask it, like, is it as simple as uh, service as simple as, uh, and I, I hear there's a process. So there's, there's definitely healing involved and whatever healing means for people. Uh, and for you, there was a huge physical component of that. So there is this healing process, but then like, is it as simple as getting out of ourselves and giving of that healing, giving of that wholeness to people, um, from a privileged place or not? You know, is that, is that what it's all about? I guess. I I think it is, you know, I really do. Uh, I don't come from religious background, so I don't, my wife, um, part of a synagogue, she's Jewish and we raised our kid Jewish, but I'm an atheist and I I didn't live in the worlds where going to a synagogue or a church, you know, service was kind of built in often. And the idea of service work and connection to your, you know, higher power, that stuff never was baked into me. Um, but I was definitely around people who, who wanted to do good. Mm. Um, those great, well-meaning liberal people, um, who do so, so many bad things at the same time. (laughs) We won't get into that. Um, (laughs) but, uh, but, um, you know, I'll tell you a quick story. You know, there's a place in this town called Beloved, the Beloved Community, based on that uh, Martin Luther King idea. These are incredible people. Um, 
uh, Amy Cantrell and her partner and the people that she works with, they're like doing amazing work. Mm -hmm. All I want to do is support them because they are on, they live intentional poverty, they live on the street, they help people find life, you know, places to go off the street, they get jobs for them, they bring food to people, they, I mean, they do amazing work. And so I was like, all right, you know what, I'm ready to go. I'm going to help them. This is during the pandemic. I'm going to uh, get my shot and I'm going to go and I'm going to start helping them deliver food to people. And I'm going to get up, you know, twice a day, twice a week and get up in the morning and haul food. And I did it for about three weeks. I felt so good. And then I totally hurt myself. I was like, one day I just was like hauling boxes for three hours from up from a truck down to somebody like 30 pounds. Oh, good. Yeah. And I'm just too old now. I mean, I thought I was in shape. I got, I literally hurt myself so bad that I couldn't move for like a month. Oh, and I haven't man. been back. I haven't been able to help them. And I was like so embarrassed. I was like, oh, you know what? I overextended myself. But then I started doing things for them that I could do. Like, I'm not going to continue to do that, but I am going to help raise money through getting poetry readings and raise money and, you know, help them other ways. So you got to find how you can do it. If you're not a first line activist, then don't feel guilty about mm-hmm. it. Um, yeah. But, you know, if you um, helping a kid, you know, with their uh, essay for high school or, you know, you know, yeah. you know, I have a neighbor who needs a help and we're all she's living alone in, 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 a, in a house that's barely manageable, barely able to, to she's it's a really unhealthy house and she's has nobody, you know, nobody to take care of her. And so about 10 of us are kind of helping her get food and trying to get her, um, you know, a guardian and and. Mm. It's kind of a pain in the neck, but it's, <laughs> I feel like that's one thing I can do. Yeah. I, I love that. Cause I, I do, I agree with, you. I think about how fractured this certainly w- nation is right now. Um, and I think there's micro communities, even people going into homes over the holidays, you know, you're going to have to yep. deal with your reactivity, with emotions, with heightened awareness, all that stuff comes up. And, and yet we can in small ways, like heal, (laughs) like figure out how am I getting triggered and tapped into right now? And then how do I show up differently in gratitude or compassion or service to these people in my life? And that can look lots of different ways. So I think that's that's where we are as a country, as a community right now. Um, Well, Sebastian, I'm wondering, so as you are involved in a lot of different things around you and you yep. you are working from home you know we've been recently talking a little bit about you know a lot of us are working from home it's like kind of liking it i mean, I always work from home but yeah oh well i was wondering like did, what you know the idea we've been talking about a little bit of like this idea of hard and soft boundaries uh yeah. and like what are your like definitive no's as much as possible um most people they, when they think of efficiency or productivity they they think they have to go to hard boundaries because they they, yeah. they tend to have them so soft but like do you negotiate the difference between those two what are your kind of this is where when i got to work and this is when i'm going to rest or could or you be talk, flexible even could yeah. you talk to that a little bit i can i probably like to be helpful um i am all for t- entire soft boundaries um <laughs> i don't okay it's all, flexible. Um, I, I, it's all flexible. It's all good. And again, that comes from a place of privilege. But I'm telling you, um, I like, you know, I think that, um, what's it called? Multitasking gets a bad rap. Um, <laughs> really? I do. I, I don't think that um, not paying attention to five things at once is a good idea. But to create a space where you're kind of dancing between five things and, and get mm. into a groove, yeah. then I think you can actually get more work done and 
it's a more creative place because you're allowing associative connections to be made in ways that won't happen when you're when you're you know busting through one thing right. and then I'm going to get this done and I'm going to do the next thing. Um, first of all, it's not as fun, um, and I actually think having fun as much as you can is the trick because if you're not having fun, then I'm not sure why you're doing it. And having fun, of course, is relative. I mean, uh, you know, I tell my, you know, I don't want to be, ha I realize I don't want to be happy anymore. I don't really care to be happy. There are moments when I'm happy and I'm like, oh, uh oh, what's going to happen now? <laughs> right. an, you know, the I Ching says if, when things are going well, the book of changes, sharpen your weapons. You know, like, <laughs> watch out. Because as soon as things are going well, they're going to, it's going to go bad. And so it's not happiness, it's being content and balanced. And so for me, a soft bound, I mean soft bound is like today, like I have a workshop I'm going to run in after this, and I had to read some pieces for it. I wanted to do my own writing. I had to get ready for this. Uh, I had to do some dishes, and I needed to, <laughs> I had to sit in on a, fr a friend's um, Zoom reading from a book festival, and I wanted to listen to music. And I did all of them at the same time until the point where it's time to sit down with you guys. And I'm ready for the class when we're done. And I listened to the guys reading and I did the dishes and I wrote some work on my, I didn't do much of my own writing today, but I thought about it and my dogs are happy. They, I took a walk. Yeah. Um, so wow, you're living is, a good life. There. Is that true for your writing though, too? Like I, I'd love yeah. to hear how, like, do you, are you able to be bounced around yeah. like that? Well, maybe the only hard boundary, maybe it's a medium, soft, hard boundary. So I get up in the morning, I make a cup of coffee, um, I play that game um, Spelling Bee from the New York Times. If you guys, it's addictive. Don't do it. Um, and I um, get a little food, and um, I sit down and I write for an hour ish, and then I take a walk for about an hour ish. You know, I live in a neighborhood where there's a public golf course, so you can kind of just wander on it uh, before the golfers get on it. And um, then I get back and I write for an hour, and then I stop. And then if I get any other writing done during the rest of the day, that's just gravy. Yeah. Okay. Actually, that is a super helpful uh, response or answer. I think that, you know, yeah. people are different. There's this thing, the sprint model. And, totally. You know, yeah, some people, like, they do do the one task at a time really well. Yeah, and, and, and people that we work with, there is a creative element to their day. So, and a lot of people, it's oh, in the morning. So, I think that seems to be to. where a lot of people have a hard boundary, is getting up early to create whatever it is they're creating. But then to have the flexibility and the variance in your day, variability, I think that's really, I've never heard a writer really talk about that, having that, the fluidity of that, but because it's, it's, really. it's a privilege. Yeah, it is. Not many writers, it's, and you're, you know, maybe it's, a, I'm not really, um, I'm 56, so I'm not really retired and I want to keep teaching for a while, but I have some of the, you know, components of a, a life of somebody who's retired. And that's a, that's a privilege. You have more time. You know, most people who are writers, right, you know, like you said, they get up and they carve that one hour and they go to work, you know. Uh, and, I, and I think the real smart ones uh, take notes throughout the day and don't stop. Don't say, I'm just going to go back to it later, but, but, but cheat on everything else and give uh, like a 20% of their mind always to what they're thinking. Of, mm -hmm. You know, like you can't just forget, do it for an hour and forget about it, go back to it the next day. It won't, it won't always work. Right. But if you've been thinking about it and taking notes and reading a little bit, talking to people, and then you go back to it, then the continuity is there. It's a, that's a good loop. Yeah, for sure. Could you share yeah. with us uh, a, a section from your book, yeah. Beyond yeah. Repair? I'd love to. I have yeah. this book's about, it's not that we're actually beyond repair. That's not really what the book's about, but I think mm -hmm. it feels like we are. Mm. Um, okay. But maybe, you know, I, they're short. I can maybe read one from, a little bit from each. But this, okay, the Please. first one's called Invisible. It's very short. Invisible. 
He looked to be in his mid-60s, compact build, a designer baseball cap tight on his head, beard close-cropped, clutching a smartphone in his right hand. It was eight in the morning, and the guy was wearing sunglasses. I thought at first he was talking to himself in a quiet mumble, but he had an earbud in, and judging by the few words I could make out, stocks, downside, he was doing business. The woman behind the register greeted him and rang up his breakfast. He either didn't hear her or just ignored her. I watched, I watched as she visibly bristled. The man kept talking, and when she told him the amount, drew out a considerable fold of bills, pulling out a crisp five and two singles. All the man's movements were slow, deliberate, controlled. He fingered through his change purse and dropped a quarter on the counter. Still talking. The woman made change. The man took his time replacing his wallet and gathering up his items. Never once did he look at her or stop quietly chatting with his business partner. In Dallas, Hong Kong, when the man finally stepped out of earshot, I said to the woman, I don't think he, even, I don't think he was even here. She chuckled. I try not to take it personally when they talk on the phone, but it's when there are, there are people behind in line that it gets to me. The woman looked after the man, then back at me. You're not the only person in the world, you know. Yeah. And she was saying that, that last line about him, or the, what he kind of represented it, but I got a little feeling that it was a bit of like, you know, I was feeling like, yeah, I'm paying attention. He's, 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 he's fast asleep, and he's a total jerk and privileged guy, and I'm not. And I think in some ways, I wasn't much different from him to her. I mean, I could easily be um, irritating in my joking with her. Um, but for me, that encounter had so many layers because he really wasn't there. And he, he, had, he felt like he had the right not to participate. Um, and she really had to ha take it. Mm. Um, and then she had to handle me trying to be, communic you know, to communicate with her. And that's kind of what this book's about is that yeah. it's, when you try to interact with people you don't know, you're taking risks all the time. And some of them are huge rewards. Mm. You meet these amazing people. You learn amazing things about people and you hear great stories. And then you also get some real, you know, you can run into some trouble. Um, and I, <laughs> I ran into some trouble doing it. It's a risk. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's a risk. But I think it's a well worth it. Yeah. Uh, I really do. It makes, I feel like. It makes me think of um, our friend and my business partner, Ted Alling, who um, he, he imagines, he says, imagine that every person you meet is wearing a shirt that says, make me feel special. Mm. And that's, you know, to, it totally changes how you interact with people. Uh, that that's really kind of a core need that we're all walking around with that we don't pay attention to, most of us. Um, so that is, when he told me that, and it's always stuck with me. Uh, and it's, it's hard idea. to do, but I idea. love that idea. It's a good thing to aspire to, you know. <laughs> you know. Right. No, I mean yeah. it. I mean, I feel like this, this idea of, you know, you talked about the anagram earlier before we got on, but, you know, that the mystic, the Gurdjieff, uh, um, talked about this idea of self-remembering. And, and I know the anagram is based on a lot of uh, Gurdjieff's ideas. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, it, it's hard to um, pay attention, and it's hard to be aware of yourself and to be aware of the outside world at the same time. Yeah. Um, and that's what that phrase is asking you to do is to be to it's what it's what active empathy is right it's what therapists Ooh. do for a job yeah. you have to be aware of who you are and what your boundaries are and be present to what you need and then you have to be wide open to somebody yeah. else and try to understand where they're coming from that's not easy to do no. and both are risky 
if I go inside, oh, I don't know what I'm going to find. <laughs> and then to risk yeah. going outside with that uh, is, is of course, tricky sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, I do my share of drinking beer and trying to check out and watching shows. But checking out is, is, is a great way to not do that. And <laughs> we all do it. We all do it because we have to. Right. But, man, life's much better when, when the percentage of checking out to paying attention is like 20 to 80. Yeah, totally. Um, not Something not to aspire to. Yeah. And it's something to aspire to. I love that, uh, that idea of empathy and starting with yourself. And it is hard to move outward. Um, but it is rewarding when we do. Would you it read your rewarding. second? We'll, yeah, thank you. I just it's quick. It's my friend. This book's kind of dedicated to two friends, uh, poets Vivi Francis and, and uh, Curtis Bauer, and they are you know folks that I wrote pieces to and, and about and thought about, and they read the book when I was writing. So the idea of friendship is woven into this book. And um, I was visiting him down in Lubbock. And uh, I'll just read the middle part of it. But basically, downtown Lubbock, you know, I was joking that it felt like the Walking Dead set. And uh, turns out there's a town in Georgia where they filmed that series. Um, and I always imagine what it'd be like to grow up. It'd be a great TV show, you know, set in that town from the point of view of somebody growing up in it during the, the shooting of that show. Oh, gosh, um, yeah. Can you imagine? It, it, he, weird, you know. And so he was basically saying asked me about the book and kind of pushing me on it. Like, what is this idea of Beyond Repair? So we were walking around this town, kind of a ghost town. We've been walking around, the, we've been talking about the state of affairs in Lubbock, in Texas, in the country, trying not to fall into despair. I worry a lot that our world has moved beyond repair. Curtis pushes back the thought. Is anything really ever beyond repair? I try to explain myself. I mean, why even try to repair something so broken? We, we bat the idea around. Maybe it's not about systemic failure, as in that car is dead, it's beyond repair, but instead about something transformational, as in we need to move beyond repair, not trying to fix something, but overhauling the whole system, throwing everything out and starting again. Yeah. Uh, one, of the, one of the tricks for me as a writer is, it, and this book was a challenge to only write encounters. And so if you have to do, the whole book is about 95% encounter, 90%. Then you have to really pick and choose when you tell and, <laughs> and talk because you don't have much time. And so I, I've tried to break the main core of the book, like my little preaching moments. I've tried to build them into the scene so that you could, I could at least talk to you a little bit about what I was trying to do, uh, not just have to have you infer what I was trying to get at through encounters. We did talk about that, but I definitely forced that little that little soundbite in. But I, I do believe it is that you know, we are. I think we're broken as a country, um, but I don't think we're doomed i just think we have to we have to really literally transform ourselves and i think we're trying i think on both sides mm -hmm. and, and um and of course right now politically those both sides are at each other's throats and and it's like a mad mad you know mad mad comics you know spy versus spy but really it should be <laughs> more like we're all working together on it but um you know who knows where are you finding optimism like what are you seeing and observing where you're like oh Okay, that's that feels good. We're getting there. We're seeing something optimistic. My boy's eighteen. He's heading off to college, um, and I think it's his his um, it's his generation, the one just before him, the millennial, and his the one coming. I think they're they're that's what makes me mm. um, their sense of sexuality, race, climate change, wealth is so much more sophisticated than than ours and. And it's in the water for them. I, so many times I'm talking to somebody who's like 60 and they're like, I just don't get the they, them thing. I, you know, I really want to try, but it just doesn't make sense to me. You know, and I'm like, 
just think that they don't like believe it's just they don't even they're not even interested in that and or they're not you know and start from there you know because it's they're, they're just they're, they feel like there's a little bit of a enlightenment in that generation that needs to be um mm. like a fire needs to be blown like blown on oh, um, it's yeah. so interesting i agree yeah. with you and our oldest is also i think i think they're the same age so Elias is 19 yeah i think so uh, he yeah. sent me a text recently. He uh, screenshotted a tweet that had like 200 and something thousand likes. So it says, trying to explain to my parents very gen- that basically nobody under 40 right now expects good things to happen ever again. <laughs> I was like, oh, crap. So I think we're yeah. all optimistic in what we're seeing. I don't think yeah. they feel that from us, from these generations ahead that are creating all the crap. They're like looking at us and we're, I think, looking back at that generation um, with pretty high kind of expectations and noble ideals for these kids. And I don't think they know that or see that. So I think we've got some some work to do. That's my point. I do. I think, yeah. And I think they have a right to kind of pissed at us and and, and our generation messed up. Um, We, you know, we dragged our feet in a couple of ways that, I mean, and there's just a lot of, we've been kind of naive, like. You know, it's hard to say. I don't want to get into politics, but you know, I I just feel like that we. I hope you can hear my dog hungry for food here. Wait a second, Lola. Um, <laughs> we're almost done, Lola. Yeah. We're almost there, Lola. So anyway, yeah, no, I, I do I do think you're right. We need to communicate to them better. Um, and um, but I think you know I was just watched. Uh, is it Greta? Um, what's her last name? The, the climate change activist. Yeah, she. Mm-hmm. You know, I just think. We need to give them space to do their thing. I agree. Too. I think she's amazing. They'll, they'll I think she's figure amazing. it out. They- wow, Sebastian, yeah. thank you for taking the time for running the gauntlet of these challenging questions. Um, really appreciate your time, your investment, your thoughtfulness. Uh, I think this is going to mean a lot to a lot of people. I hope so. Uh, me too. And I love being on here. You guys are doing a great thing. I'm going to check out what you guys do more uh, thoroughly. I like the idea of big self. And, yeah, uh, thanks. thanks. It's good to yeah. reconnect. You know, I knew that I agree. you had been through something really terrible. Um, to hear that you went through that um, and have kind of found your way again, and it sounds like even grown from it. Can I say that? I think. I hope so. I hope okay. so. I sure. I, I sure like this guy better than that guy. So. Oh God, that's good. Yeah. So, and, yeah. and obviously you're writing. We want people to check you out. We're going to put, repair, put sure. your stuff state, in yeah. our show notes yep. and uh, let everybody know. Great. Yeah. Let awesome. tell people how to find you, Sebastian. They want to check out your Sebastian, stuff. Sebastian, yes, SebastianMatthews.com. S-E-B-A-S-T-I-A-N-M-A-T-T-H-E-W-S.com. That's a good way. I have a lot of stuff up my stuff up there, and uh, I do a radio show. Um, check out um, Jazz on a Summer's Day. It's a community-based radio show where I have people on who play music and talk. Nice. WPVM 103.7. And here is the big self takeaway. Sebastian Matthews experienced a life-changing event that was well, almost life-ending. Besides the broken bones, part of his growth process for him and his family was dealing with the trauma. He tells us that sometimes PTSD doesn't even set in until a couple of years after the event. He also tells us 
We don't all have to go through such an intense trauma to experience things like burnout, anxiety, and disconnection from yourself and others. He believes in the creative life and soft boundaries between work and play, but definitely adheres to some clear and consistent routines. He also believes in connection. He began that process first by writing about the experience with his book, Beginner's Guide to a Head-On Collision. More recently, his award-winning Beyond Repair documents his experience in reconnecting with the culture, community, and country he found himself immersed in. He reminds us that we need to start with ourselves. But after the healing begins, there comes a time to quit the navel-gazing and get out there and reconnect with the world. While getting out of the house and meeting up with old friends in different places is one way, the deeper connection is to connect with your community. Sebastian reminds us of ways to do so in reasonable and realistic ways. One lesson he's learned through the past decade of struggle is that the only way out is through. But the second, no less important one, is that when you give back to others, you reap unexpected rewards. This is the way to growth, healing, and beating the sense of disconnection so many of us find ourselves in here at the end of 2021. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Big Self Podcast.